You know, so one of the things I love to do ever since moving to New York over five years ago is I love to visit art museums. So um, every year I get usually get at least one uh, membership to one of the museums around here. And this year, uh, the membership that I got for my birthday was for the Museum of Modern Art, uh, one of my favorite museums here in the city. But I remember the first time I ever visited the Museum of Modern Art. It was years before we moved to the city, and I was, like many Americans do, I was vacationing in New York, and I thought, you know what, I need to, I need to see for myself what these famous New York art museums are all about. And you have to realize, I am from a small, small town. And I did not grow up around paintings and sculptures and high culture. You know what I mean? I was into sports. And the most art I l ever listened to was Johnny Cash. Like, that's the most artistic thing it ever got from me. And still, to this day, I do love Johnny Cash. But so, I, so you have to understand, I go to the Museum of Modern Art. I'm just this kid from a small town, not really sure what to make of Andy Warhol. Like, what is it? Soup cans? You know, and then the Jackson Pollocks. I'm like, Mike, that looks like my kid could do that, you know, or the Barnett Newmans. I'm just like, that, it's just red and a line. You know, what is that? And I remember walking around going like, what am I looking at? And, and did I really pay this money to come to this museum? And I was walking around going, what is this? And then I was walking to the elevator. I still remember where it was. You know, at the museums, they change up where they put the paintings. But I still remember where it was this particular time. But I remember walking toward the elevators on the fifth floor and being gobsmacked by one particular painting in a way that I had never experienced looking at a painting before. And it was a painting called Christina's World. And in an instant, I was awestruck. I was taken back by the detail of this painting. If you ever get a chance to see this painting, each individual blade of grass is painted by hand. Each of the individual black hairs on Christina's head blowing in the wind, the details of the the wood paneling on the house in the distance, the birds in the air, the sky, everything, the colors of this painting were unlike anything else you see in that museum. And the way this disabled woman in this painting demonstrated this resilience and this courage and this independence was so inspiring to me when I saw this painting. And this painting stirred something in my emotions that I had no idea a painting could do. And it was powerful, and I looked at it for a few minutes, and then I thought to myself, I've got to know who the painter is. What's this, what's this painter's deal? Who is this painter? Because the painting doesn't show up in a museum out of nowhere, does it? There's a, a painting doesn't just randomly appear. There's a, there has to be a painter. And so I said, what, uh, who is this painter? Who is this creator? What is he like? What caused him to paint this particular picture? What inspired him? Why did he choose this landscape and this subject and these colors? Who is this painter? I've got to know. And so I looked at the plaque on the wall, and it said, Andrew Wyeth, Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. And over the last several years, Andrew Wyeth has become, hands down, my favorite painter on the planet. And so I read the little plaque on the side, but that wasn't enough. And so I went to the museum gift shop, and I bought a book on Andrew Wyeth. And since then, I've watched all the documentaries, I've read the, the biographies, I've looked at all of his other paintings, and one of these days, I'm going to go to Chad's Ford and see his studio, because I had to know, and I want to know more about this man 
who created such an incredible painting. This weekend, actually Friday, I just took my daughter to see this painting for the first time. She was not impressed. <laughs> Art has a way of doing that. It gets some of us, but not the, uh, the rest of us. She was impressed by the Matisses and the Van Goghs. So what are we doing? We're reading stories about Van Gogh and Matisse this week at bedtime. Today, like I said earlier, we're beginning a new series called This Is Our God. And today I want us to look at Psalm 19 where King David expresses amazement at the beauty of God's creation and he wonders, what is this creator like? And just like Christina's world made me want to know more about Andrew Wyeth, the beauty of God's creation ought to make us want to know more about who our God is and what our God is like. Psalm 19 verse 1, it says, The heavens <clears throat> declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor, there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In him he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So as I said, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the various attributes of God, and to see what God is like, and how that can give us hope and perseverance in the times that we're living in. But today, I want to lay the foundation... And I want us to see that God is knowable. And if you want to know what God is like, you have to first know where to look. And the first place you can look to know what God is like is you look to his creation. You look to the skies. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The psalmist is talking about the skies and the heavens and the night skies and all of that. But I think this verse also applies just in general to all of creation. This summer, my family and I have spent a lot of time outside of the city uh, due to COVID. You know, you can't <laughs> go, go to all the things we've always done in the city, so we've had to leave the city many times. And so we visited the Rhode Island coast. We went to the Catskills, the Blue Ridge Mountains in western North Carolina for a week or two. I went fishing off of the Long Island coast. Great summer. I took my daughters camping for their first time. And this summer, I've had the opportunity to take in God's creation in ways that I haven't in many, many years. But when you stand at the edge of the ocean, and when you look out over a beautiful mountain range, and in recent days, as you watch as the autumn, as the leaves turn to autumn colors, or when you sit on a Brooklyn rooftop on a clear night sky, and you see the stars, and you look up at the heavens, it is impossible to not feel small, isn't it? Nobody stands at the ocean and looks out over the expanse of the ocean and thinks that there's something special. Creation has a way of making us feel small, and it has a way of awe-inspiring us and causing us to wonder, who created this, and where did this come from, and what is this God like? You see, virtually in every culture in human history has looked at the world around them, the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky, and they've concluded that all of this beauty is not an accident. There's something that created this. There's no painting that magically or randomly shows up into the Museum of Modern Art because there has to be a painter. And creation is not beautiful the way it is by accident. It's there and it's beautiful because, it ha because there has to be a creator. The heavens declare 
the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Verse 2, David says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David says, when you see the sun in the morning and the moon at night, creation is speaking to you that there is a God. But then in verse 3, he says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. David says in verse 2, creation speaks, but then he says in verse 3, creation's not speaking. What's going on here? What's he trying to say? David is hinting at what theologians today call general revelation, just a term to file away in your categories there, which says that God speaks generally through creation, but not specifically. By looking at creation, we can have a general sense that there is a God, and we can even understand some things about his character. But creation doesn't speak specifically about God. In other words, the painting, Christina's World, that I mentioned earlier, the painting alone reveals some things about the painter, generally speaking. It reveals that the painter is someone who has compassion on those with disabilities, just seen in the way that he portrays this disabled woman, Christina, with such dignity and power. It also reveals that he either lived in or had an affinity for rural areas, just the landscape itself. It reveals that he saw beauty in the ordinary things of life. See, the painting can reveal general things about the painter, but it doesn't tell specifics about the painter's life and his character like an autobiography would or an interview or a documentary. The same is true with God. Creation reveals that there is a God and that God is powerful. And it reveals that God loves beauty. It reveals that God sometimes create, creates good things merely because they're good and beautiful. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to look at the birds and the flowers. And he says, look, they have everything they need. And if God clothes them and cares for creation, how much more so will God provide for us? You see, creation reveals that God is a provider. But creation also seems to imply that this God is great and he's holy and he's different from us. That feeling of smallness we have when we look out over a massive mountain range of the Grand Canyon, that feeling of smallness makes us recognize that if this God is powerful enough to create this world, then we must stand with humility in his presence and we must honor this God with our lives. So, general revelation, look to the skies, you can see that there is a God and you might pick up some things about what his character might be like, but you can't know who God is specifically and only through creation. We first look to the skies, but then secondarily and more importantly, we must look to the scriptures. Theologians explain the scriptures as special revelation, meaning that God reveals himself generally through his creation, but God speaks to us specifically or specially through scripture. We know generally what God is like by looking to the skies, but we can hear God's voice by looking in the scriptures. And this is important because we have to allow God to speak for himself about what he is like, don't we? And he tells us what he is like in the scriptures. So we must then submit to his special revelation of who he is. So what that means is when you look to creation, you are met with the realization that, you, that there must be a creator. But when you look to the scriptures, you can find out what that creator is like. And David explains that when we look to the scriptures, we see that God is good and that he restores us and that he is at work in his creation and that he is at work in our lives and that he cares 
for us. You know, David was a songwriter, just like our David. (laughs) And in verses 7 through 11, David breaks out into a song when he thinks about the beauty of the Scriptures. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, and now currently becoming a favorite of my daughters as we read Narnia together. Special time for a dad to read Narnia to his girls for the first time. We're on Voyage of Don Treader right now. We're used to just, you know, the dragon scene. Oh, so good. But C.S. Lewis said that Psalm 19, this psalm, is the greatest poem in all of the psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in all of the world. And just in these verses in Psalm 19, there are 18 words described, used to describe the scriptures. Six nouns, six verbs, and six adjectives. His instruction is perfect, and it revives us. Noun, adjective, verb. His testimony is sure, and it makes us wise. His precepts are right, and they make us glad. His commandments are pure, and they enlighten our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. His rules are true and righteous, greater than gold and sweeter than honey. Now, listen, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. Throughout this pandemic, I have had plenty, many ups and downs. Have you? (laughs) I mean, has this been hard for anybody else? And I've had days where I feel like my faith and my trust has been in, in God has been very strong. But I've also had some really discouraging days, and I know you have as well. Days where I've just frankly had trouble believing that God is up to anything good right now. Days where I've had trouble believing that God will provide for my family and me and for this church and for our community. I've had days where it's been difficult for me to have joy and days where it's been difficult for me to have peace. And I've been easily distracted many days and overwhelmed by the constant barrage of bad news and fear for the future. It's been a hard time for me. It's been a struggle spiritually. I've struggled to remember the character and the goodness of God at many times throughout this pandemic. Has anybody else felt that way? Let me know. Speak back. Amen. Just let me know. But my wife and I, we've been married for quite a while now, which, by the way, happy anniversary to Pastor Kyle and his lovely wife, Colette. They just celebrated 10 years. But my wife and I, we've been married for a while now, and we can sense when one of us is struggling to connect with God. You know, I can sense when my wife's discouraged or when she's down, and she can definitely sense when I'm discouraged or when I'm down. And we'll often say to one another, hey, let me watch the kids. Do you need some time to go be alone with the Scriptures and with the Lord? And my wife is often, often gracious to allow me a few hours to go grab a coffee and just take my Bible 
And I cannot tell you how many times and how without fail that when I look to the scriptures, it has renewed and restored my joy and has made me glad and has enlightened my eyes. Why? Because the scriptures tell me what my God is like. The news tells me how chaotic the world is. Twitter tells me how changing the times we're living in are. Facebook, I don't even have Facebook because it used to stress me out so much, but I know that when you look at it, those things tell me what to panic about. But when I look at the scriptures, it tells me what is constant and what is true. And what is constant and what is true is that the character of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he does not change. He's been through pandemics before. He was there in 1918. He was there when when he sent the plagues on Egypt. He was there when the bubonic plague swept all over the world. He was there. He was there. He's not surprised or intimidated or threatened or afraid of coronavirus. He's been through this before, and he will go through it again. And guess what? He will not relinquish his throne because of a virus. And when I look to the scriptures, I see the constant character of God, and it restores, renews, revives my soul, enlightens my eyes, and it makes me glad. The scriptures, we look to the scriptures and they remind us and they tell us what God is like. I have a friend who recently became a Christian and she has read through the Bible from cover to cover in a very short amount of time. And this friend looked at me and said to me, she said, I can't get enough of it. Because the more I read the scriptures, the more I learn about this God and the more it gives me life. You see, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking to the Scriptures to see the ways that God has revealed Himself to us, that He is eternal, He is holy, He is everlasting, He is good. And my desire is that when we look to see what God is like, you and I will be renewed and restored. That's why we're doing this sermon series, because the world is chaotic and and changing right now. But we need to fix our eyes on what is true and constant. And what is true and constant is the character and the nature of our God. And in the scriptures, we're shown a God who is constant in every trial and is certain in every situation. And his love never fails and his character never falters. And his faithfulness is true for every generation. And this is important for two reasons. It's important to know that the scriptures speak about God for two reasons. One, because God has spoken. We don't have to guess or uh, uh, pontificate about what God is like. He has revealed himself in through the scriptures. There is an autobiography on the life of my favorite painter, Andrew Wyeth. I don't have to guess what he is like. I can read his autobiography. I don't have to guess what God is like. He has written, he has written about himself. He has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. But it's also important because if God has revealed himself to us, That means we must surrender to his revelation, meaning that we are tempted to make God in our own image. You guys remember, uh, what was the movie? You know, my Jesus, you know, he's like the lead singer of a, you know, rock band or whatever. No, we don't get, you don't get that, you don't get, you don't get to make Jesus in your image. This idea of like, my God would never do this, or my God would never be like that. Or have you noticed that when we make God in our own image, he always votes the same way we do. He likes the same songs that we do. He likes the same churches that we do. And he hates the same things we hate. 
We don't get the privilege of creating God in our image. The scriptures tell us what God is like, and then we submit to what the scriptures say about our God. And the scriptures protect us from this tendency. So we look to the scriptures to see what God is like. Now, do you want to know what this God of ours is like? Look to the skies, look to the scripture, but most importantly, look to the Savior. David finishes this psalm. He said, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back me, your servant, also from my presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David looks at the skies. He looks at the scriptures, and he says, Woe is me, God, in light of what you've revealed about yourself in creation and in the scriptures. How can I stand in your presence with my sins? And he says, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David says that when we study this God, when we seek to know him, it will reveal that we are unworthy of his great love. But David also points us beyond our own feelings of inadequacy to a Savior who redeems us, who makes us worthy, who makes us acceptable in God's sight. And what David saw very vaguely, we see clearly. David was awaiting a Messiah, but we've seen the Messiah and it is Christ the Lord. Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. In Christ, we see that God loves sinners. In In Christ, we see that God loves the broken and the outcast. In Christ, we see that God heals, he feeds, he clothes, he welcomes, he invites, he pursues, he shows mercy, he reverses sickness and death. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated his love for you by taking on your sin, dying your death, and at the resurrection, Jesus rose to life, defeated death, and he now offers you new life. That is what God is like. He is knowable. You can know this God. You can trust this God. And in this season of uncertainty and in those moments when you feel like you're slipping or when you're drifting, and I know many of you feel like you're drifting in your faith right now. In those moments, we need to look to what is true. And what is true is that he is our rock and he is our redeemer. And if you want to know what God is like, you can look to the skies, you can look to the scriptures, but the character of God is most clearly seen in our Savior, who is Jesus. And that's why we remind ourselves of the Savior each week through communion. And so if you walked in here this morning, if you're celebrating worship with us in this room this morning, you picked up a communion cup on your way in. You have juice in that little package and a thing of bread. The juice is representative of Jesus' blood, which was shed for you on the cross. And the bread is a symbol of his body that was broken for you on the cross. And Jesus said that we are to take, <clears throat> we are to take of these elements and we're to think of him and remember the sacrifice on the cross. If you're here today and you're wondering, what is God like and where is God in this pandemic? The reason we take communion is so that we can remind ourselves that God is with us in the pain and in the difficulties of life. Where is, where is God? He's on a cross. 
bearing the weight of your sin on himself. Where is God? God is kicking open the, the, the death in your life, and he's rising to new life, and he's ascended, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is going to come again one day and reverse all that is broken in this world, and coronavirus will be no more, and death will be no more, and sadness, and sickness, and fear will be no more, because Jesus has defeated those things through his cross and resurrection. And so when you take the communion today, whether you're here with us or whether you're taking online, we are doing this as an act of defiance against the fear that we feel right now in this season. We take communion as an act of rebellion against the panic that this world is throwing at us. We take communion to remind ourselves what is sure and true in the midst of all that's going on around us. And so we take communion because Jesus told us to, to do this in remembrance of him. And so I would encourage you to stand right now, whether you're with us or whether you're at home, and we're going to sing in just a moment. And while we're singing, would you take in your own time when you're ready the body and the blood of Christ this morning? Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, before we sing, I just simply want to thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like. You have revealed yourself. You've given us the scriptures which speak of your character and your faithfulness to past generations. God, you've given us your son to show us what you're like. And in your son, we see that you love sinners and you're willing to give everything to redeem us. And so God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross and we thank you that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is alive. And so we're entrusting our fear to you and we're entrusting our uncertainty to you and we're entrusting our drifting and our slipping and our backsliding to you, believing that you will welcome us back if we come running to you. And so God, we, we thank you and we take your body and your blood today as an act of praise and as an act of celebration for all that you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.